It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the podcast formerly known as Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. You may have noticed the name on our logo has changed a little bit. That's just a placeholder because we are currently developing a brand new show that will have a new name and a new sound. We will be working on getting that right this summer. In the meantime, we'll be revisiting some of our favorite interviews from our first four years. As we do that, we'll continue our mission to get you ready for the weekend with a roundup of some of the fun, entertaining, and educational things to do in and around Atlanta in the coming days. Let's get started with a couple of those upcoming events. It's hard to get a feel for just how wacky artist Julie Blackman's photographs are without seeing them in person. For Blackman, it's all in the layered, loopy details that ping like electrified atoms around her action-packed photographs centered on little children run amok in her solo exhibition at Jackson Fine Art called Metaverse. The featured players in her images are shirtless waifs with uncombed hair and sugar-dazed expressions. Her virtually feral children are long-limbed Norman Rockwell scamps, but with some Lord of the Flies energy threatening to tip over from Americana into anarchy. Check out our review and see a few of the photos in this week's Go Guide in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on Friday and online at AJC.com. Asked to describe Lost Art Music Festival, founder Jim Etheridge explained the concept as similar to a rock cruise, except it all takes place at the Fox Hall Resort in Douglas County, some 30 miles southwest of Midtown Atlanta. Originally, Etheridge hoped to debut Lost Art in 2020 but due to COVID-19, it was pushed to June 2021. This year's festival is set for June 17th through the 18th, focusing on a style of music Fest founder Etheridge calls high-energy Americana, a wide-ranging genre that draws on American roots music styles. The festival also caters to the 30 and up crowd, people who still love live music, but want it served up in the right setting with the proper amenities. For Lost Art, that was Fox Hall, an outdoor-focused resort on 1,100 acres centered around what Etheridge describes as a beautiful bend in the Chattahoochee River. Look for our preview story on the fest on AJC.com. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, let's revisit a podcast from early 2018, 
when Atlanta Symphony Orchestra conductor and music director Robert Spano announced that he'd be leaving the orchestra in 2021. The pandemic postponed that for a year, and he spent the 2021-22 season as co-artistic director with ASO principal guest conductor Donald Runnicles. This weekend, the ASO's season finale will also serve as Spano's farewell. Soon after the announcement of his departure, Bo Emerson spoke with Spano about his time in Atlanta leading the ASO. Look for our review of Spano's Curtain Call and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on Saturday and online at AJC.com. And keep in mind that the interview we're about to hear is from more than four years ago, so any dates and events that may come up are in the past. And this week, I'm here with uh, one of our staff writers, Bo Emerson, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, Robert Spano, who is the conductor of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And music director. And music director. Okay, and so what is it, uh, why did we decide to do this story on Spano now? Well, first of all, I want people to know that Shane Harrison is, by the way, the rock and roll master in Atlanta. I don't know if this has been brought out. You've been relaxing behind the microphone here so long, sounding like an FM announcer, you know, all cool and everything. But you're out there with the punks and the skateboarders and <laughs> flying to England to see the Matt Johnson and all of these people. So so uh, just so you know, he's actually wild and nuts behind this cool demeanor. <laughs> But we're going to talk about classical music today, so you can go back into your FM radio announcer personality. I, I, I will do that. But the reason we're talking about Spano is he has announced this year that he's going to be leaving uh, the ASO, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, although he won't do that until the 2021 season. So that's three years from now. There'll be a long goodbye between now and then, but uh, it, there's all kinds of good reasons to catch him while you can. And particularly at the end of this season, we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. So he has been uh, leading the orchestra for quite a long time now. Uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, he will have led the orchestra for uh, 20 years uh, by the time he leaves. And that is only one year less than Robert Shaw, who everybody has the sense was here forever. Uh, but uh, but Spano has had just as much of an impact on the on the orchestra as anybody has. Right, right, yeah. Well, he he did sort of bring a more modern sensibility, I guess, to the orchestra. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that really ticked off a lot of subscribers back during Shaw's time was that he insisted on uh, performing contemporary music. Well, uh, Spano has taken that up to the next level, and he's also commissioned a ton of contemporary music from uh, people, uh, n- only one of whom is actually from Atlanta, but he's done enough of it to where he's created his own sort of school. Yeah. And it's called the Atlanta School. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and it's really identifiable. It's tonal. It's it's uh, inf- uh, influenced by pop music. It's uh, You can listen to it. You can, it has a beat. Michael Kurth, who's the bass player, he's done a ton of his compositions. You can actually, like, dance to this stuff. So that's the orchestra of 2021, you know, yeah. that in, in a nutshell. Well, that's great. I mean, I think that, that, that you know, gives it, uh, it gives it more life. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't feel like it's so old and staid. And well, hopefully it means it'll attract an audience that hasn't already been, you know, placed into formaldehyde and, and, and propped up in their cha- chairs. Right. I think, I think that he says that Scott, it's not just one audience. It's a lot of audiences now. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the more young people you can bring into this music, uh, the better, because that's the future, obviously. Well, and most people think classical music is all just one thing. But he points out that there's some of his composers, like Barbara Higdon, who is uh, from, I'm sorry. Jennifer. Jennifer Higdon, thank you. (laughs) 
Barb Higdon is an old, uh, an old new age uh, musician. Yeah. But uh, uh, Jennifer Higdon is, uh, uh, she's got her own fans out there, and uh, that they mob her when she comes through the, uh, uh, through the foyer. So uh, uh, it's it's a whole bunch of different audiences. Right. Right. Yeah, that's great. I, I I love the fact that that they're doing things that aren't just the traditional old war horses that you know everybody has heard a million times. I mean, there's 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 a, an appeal to that, and people love it. But you know, you also want to be challenged every once in a while. Well, and he's not he's not ignoring that too. He he's doing a ton of that uh, in this season and in the next season. Um, the uh, um, so he's obviously paying attention to uh, to what needs to be paid attention to. Right. Yeah. So uh, does he? You know, you talk to him uh, about uh, what what's happening in the next couple of years and what his plans are. I assume does he have plans yet for you his know, post career? He does not, and he's he says it's kind of exciting uh, not to have any plans. He's uh, I asked whether he'll compose more, and uh, he's a composer. He's also a pianist. He's uh, um, uh, and and he has said that uh, he's not really. Uh, doesn't really like composing. He likes having composed. Uh, he finds the whole uh, prospect kind of like frightening and nauseating, he says. Uh, but that's the Dorothy Parker approach to uh, writing. You know, I, I like having already written. He, um, uh, he, but he does not have any plans to join some other uh, symphony, at least none that he's sharing with us. Right, yeah. So uh, did, did he say anything about whether he would be staying here or? He said he wants to stay in Atlanta. He likes Atlanta. Um, and uh, uh, the, it seems to have uh, kind of grown on him. He, he pretended he was in New York for a long time after he moved here because he didn't even have a car for the first four years. Uh, but uh, uh, I, think, I think he's gotten into the groove here and really enjoys it here. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, so uh, was there uh, any other highlights of what you, you, uh, we can expect to hear in your story that we've got coming up? Well, he's a really, he's a fun guy to talk to. First of all, he's totally the anti-stuff uh, shirt uh, type. And uh, we talked about some of the things that he's done uh, in, in his time here. And, and he's done all uh, things to sort of, uh, in addition to the, the new music and stuff, he's, he's done things like create these sort of theatrical uh, events on stage. So um, they've, he's invited on uh, uh, folks from the Alliance and folks from the opera, and he's had uh, guys like Daniel Arsham create these wild sets that, uh, that have been part of the um, symphony performances. And he's also done, uh, uh, like collaborated a couple of times with Laurie Stallings. We talked about that. She is, of course, the uh, creator of the Glow uh, Dance Company and is well known for performing in, in places like Marta stations and right. in, in Piedmont Park and, and just in unusual locales. And he did a thing with her at the Goat uh, Farm, which was uh, his debut as a dancer. Yeah. He, I said... Yeah. He says, I'm not a dancer. Please don't say that. But in fact, he was, he, he not only performed one of his own compositions, which the dancers in the Glow Company um, uh, uh, moved to, but he, he got up and moved along with them and they spun his piano around while he was playing it. It was like watching Keith Emerson, you know, uh, in the old days of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And his <laughs> yeah, for you kids, that was the 70s. That was 70s progressive rock. Uh, yeah, so. But uh, and I asked, so did she make you wear an animal head? He said, "Okay, yes, she did." And uh, obviously, this is a guy who does not take himself too seriously, and yeah. that's what I enjoyed about talking. Yeah. 
Well, great. Well, uh, now let's uh, hear uh, Bo Emerson's interview uh, with Robert Spano, the music director at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, who will be leaving us in a few years. Spano, I'm music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And that's going to end in uh, three years. I'll be leaving end of the 2021 season. And how do you feel about that? Oh, it's an overwhelming feeling. I don't know uh, quite what I feel half the time. It's, it's been such a wonderful time here for 17 years so far. And I will have been here 20 years by the time I leave. And so... It's no longer really a job. It's my family. It's my musical life. These are my colleagues and friends. And the thought of not being here is unimaginable at this point. And I, I know that'll become more real as time goes by. But uh, at the moment, uh, I guess, in a way, knowing I'm leaving in three years puts in relief just how grateful I am to be doing what I do here because it's such a joy to do this work. And it gives people a chance to plan a really good party. Hopefully we will have a really good party in three years. So you were a youngster when you uh, arrived as far as I was music 40 when I started um, uh, as music director. I was hired when I was 39. Um, I had a year, 2000, 2001 season. I was called the music director designate. Uh, because I had taken on the responsibilities, but I hadn't moved to Atlanta yet, and I actually didn't conduct as many concerts as I normally would in a season. I think I did five subscription weeks that year. And then in 2001, I officially became the music director. And now you came from Brooklyn. Did you still have responsibilities in Brooklyn while that year was going on? Or? When I came to Atlanta, I remained music director of the Brooklyn Philharmonic for, I think it was four more years. I did both. And then I left the Brooklyn Philharmonic and, and uh, was here. But I had already changed my residence. When I came here in 2001, I took up residence here. That's a lot of directing. I was um, reluctant to leave the Brooklyn Philharmonic because I loved that orchestra too. It was a very different experience than the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. The Brooklyn Philharmonic at that time was a... Um, we played five subscription concerts a year. We played at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was a very cutting edge, uh, exciting, dynamic kind of new music and unusual music or unusual presentations. And so it was a very special kind of uh, experience. Uh, but after doing both for four more years, I really wanted my focus to be here and didn't feel I could continue to to give enough time and attention to Brooklyn, so I, I left at that time. Now, the Brooklyn audience uh, embraces all kinds of the new, and Atlanta maybe was not as ready to do that when you arrived. You, you, however, you 
uh, drew them to contemporary composers, I think. We, we have done a lot of uh, new music, living composers, and focused primarily on um, essentially my generation of living American composers. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember when I came here, I heard from people not in Atlanta, but elsewhere, saying, well, you can't do new music there. Because <laughs> they're I remember, stodgy. Well, I was reading Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full right. right when I was hired. And I remember him describing in his novel the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra as an institution that had to end every concert with Bolero to make sure everybody was happy. But that hasn't been my experience here at all. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> we did make a commitment right away when I came to... Uh, cultivate relationships with these American composers and to at the same time cultivate an audience for them. We didn't just want to be playing their music, we wanted them to become part of our musical family and for them to be appreciated and I think it was a very simple kind of strategy which was play them more than once, let them speak to members of the community interview them on uh, essentially what you could call a podcast, but we made uh, composer interviews every time we played them, play pieces of theirs more than once, put them on our touring, put them on youth concerts, record them, play pieces that we didn't necessarily commission but reflect their work, so second and third performances. And I think really that's what worked was cultivating real relationships with these composers. So there wasn't a piece here and a piece there, but really an opportunity to get to know their work and to appreciate them. And over a few years, uh, they developed their own fan bases, which was very exciting to witness. At a certain point, Jennifer Higdon was just mobbed in the lobby um, at intermission and after concerts, and that was very gratifying to see that happen. Now, she's the, the Atlanta in the Atlanta Composer School. She's the one native, right? We, um, it was about five years into my time here, I had to speak to a, a board retreat as kind of the kickoff speaker. Let's get this board retreat going. And I had no idea what I was gonna talk about or what I was gonna say. So I'm, in those days I didn't drive and I was walking to work and the retreat was here at Wait, the Wood of Art Center. Why weren't you driving? Well, I had gotten used to living without a car in New York, and I, when I moved to Atlanta, I lived in Midtown, and I was 10 blocks away from work, and so I decided to live without a car. Awesome. And that worked really well for a while. Uh, so I'm walking to work thinking, well, what am I going to talk about? What, what's going on that could get us all fired up and, and um, ready for our mission of planning and strategizing and looking toward our own future? And I... I realized, well, all these composers we've been championing, commissioning, performing, they have something in common, and it's a discernible shift aesthetically in the history of American music, because this generation of American composers do, do not sound like their teachers. Even though they may have respected and learned from their teachers, they've developed a very different vocabulary. They're not a 12-tone uh, crowd. That's right. They're, they're outside of that generation before's aesthetic 
I realized however different Higdon is from Gandolfi and however different he is from Goliath and how different he is from Theophanides, what they do have and did have in common is they're tonal, tuneful, and influenced by popular music or world music or both. Uh, the recognition that they shared these characteristics, even though they're so different from each other, made me realize, oh, this is a, this is a historic moment in American music where we can, it's, it's like looking back historically and seeing the change from the Baroque to the classical period, from the classical period to the romantic period, or various names of groups of composers like the Big Five in Russia or the Lassis in France. This is happening right here. There's a new school of American music going on, and we've been doing it, and it's exhilarating and fantastic to realize. And so I ended up talking about these composers we'd been uh, working with. And then soon after that, we realized, well, we've been doing it here, so let's call them the Atlanta School of Composers. So it was never a, it was never a design to create such a thing per se, but it was a recognition of what had, what had been transpiring. A lot of people have tried to pin me down. Who's in the Atlanta School of Composers? Well, uh, and then other people would say, well, how can it be an Atlanta School of Composers when none of them are from Atlanta? And, but there are, there are, like any family, you know, there, there are closer and more distant relatives. And I think even John Adams is part of this mix for us because we have done a lot of Adams music. And in many ways, he's kind of the... The, the grandfather to this generation, because he was doing uh, aesthetically before uh, this generation much of what they were then to pursue in terms of their vocabulary and language. Well, maybe they're the Atlanta school because, because of you. Well, I don't know about that, but we also then in the end have Atlanta composers who are closely associated with us too. Alvin Singleton, who was Robert Shaw's composer in residence, who we've continued to have a wonderful relationship with. And then in the last few years, Richard Pryor, who's teaching at Emory as the conductor of the orchestra, is a brilliant composer, and, and we've been doing more of his music. We have a commission coming up and a recording as well of his music. So it's, it's an evolving, uh, ever-expanding and flexible kind of uh, rubric. And maybe uh, the history books will catch on. We'll, we'll take that title up and, and, and uh, Atlanta will have a, have a place there. Well, certainly there has been a number of uh, writers and people doing their doctoral dissertations and who are looking at these composers and what we've been doing for these 17 years as a, as a discernible musical event. This is Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We'll continue with more of our conversation with Robert Spano, but first, here's more of our list of things to do around Metro Atlanta. Atlanta Opera's current production of the famous Candor and Ebb musical Cabaret is hardly your grandfather's version of the celebrated show. The surprisingly enduring and malleable source material began in the form of the semi-autobiographical 1939 novel Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood about a young aspiring American writer in pre-World War II Germany before being initially adapted for the stage by John Van Druten in the 1951 play I Am a Camera. Scripted by Joe Masteroff and under the original direction of Harold Prince, the musical rendition of the story first opened to great fanfare on Broadway in 1966 and later became an equally renowned 1972 film directed by Bob Fosse. 
Director Sam Mendes revisited and substantially reimagined the subject matter again for an acclaimed 1993 revival in London's West End, which was then imported to Broadway in 1998, co-directed by choreographer Rob Marshall. It's this darker, edgier, and higher-tech iteration of Cabaret that Atlanta Opera has mounted in a refurbished warehouse space at Pullman Yards, a former industrial complex in Kirkwood. Read our review of the show on AJC.com. You don't have to melt away this summer just because you don't have a private pool in the backyard. You don't have to drive hours away to beat the heat at the nearest water park either. We've put together a list of some local public pools that are highly rated, clean, renovated, and ready to help you cool off this summer. You'll find the story online at AJC.com and in the Go Guide in the June 10th print edition of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now it's time for this week's adoptable pet from the folks at Lifeline, who run the Fulton and DeKalb shelters along with the Lifeline Community Animal Center. Juan is five years old and a sweet, easygoing cat. When he's not enjoying a long nap, Juan loves gentle head rubs and will show off to his human friends by doing a big stretch, then offering you his paw. The charming Juan is available to adopt or foster from the Lifeline Community Animal Center at 3180 Presidential Drive in Atlanta. You'll find a photo of Juan and a link for more info on the story page for this podcast on AJC.com. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The facts matter now more than ever. Get unlimited digital access to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so you know what's really going on. And you're helping us fulfill our mission to bring you the news that's important to you. Subscribe today at subscribe.ajc.com podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcast to join the community for just 99 cents. Let's continue our conversation with Robert Spano. Now, uh, you uh, arrived at after a, a, a somewhat rancorous departure of, of the previous uh, music director, and in the in the years since then, there have been uh, lockouts and and uh, uh, financial crises, and uh, uh, and and the very uh, latest, uh, you actually ended up speaking on behalf of the of the musicians, um, which is an unusual thing to do. I wonder whether. Uh, you ended up uh, uh, getting any criticism as a result of that. Well, I think in any, uh, I mean, you've pointed to a lot of the rocky or difficult history that's also been part of my tenure. And the the two lockouts we endured were uh, some of the most horrific experiences of my life and certainly for everyone associated with the institution. I think that um, 
one of the most challenging and difficult things about a situation like that, a lockout or any kind of work stoppage, is that those parties who really share a common interest and a common goal are at such a state of lack of comprehension of each other that they've, they've lost sight of that common goal. And maybe one of the most difficult things is to endure through such a passage to come back to finding that common ground. And I remember during both lockouts, but especially the second one, which was much more, well, it was longer and more painful in many ways. It delayed the start of the season by nine weeks. And... We, we did have a delay in starting the season. We lost uh, many concerts along the way. I just kept thinking of Churchill saying, never, never, never give up. And recently seeing uh, The Darkest Hour, I was, I was, it actually reminded me of that period because it was really a, a test of endurance and perseverance and just saying, there, this will end and we will be back to work and the music will be playing and everyone who loves this art form and this institution for making it happen will come back to the table and we will find a way out of this. And it's very hard to remember that. Although some sy symphonies have gone away as a result of... The that. Brooklyn Philharmonic no longer exists. There you go. So I'm well acquainted with the possibility of institutions going away. And I think that was what was so important during those difficulties was to believe and trust and have faith that it would be resolved and we would uh, be back to making the beautiful music that we're supposed to be here making. And uh, you're up to one or two positions away from your 88 uh, that or 85. I've forgotten what the proper number is. Since the second lockout in the almost three years now, uh, we have restored. It was a one of the things that brought us to resolution was a commitment to restore 11 positions to the orchestra that would bring us back up to a complement of 88. This was never a kind of, this is the solution for the future and ever after. It was a, oh, this is a necessary step that we can commit to everybody involved. Uh, the, the board of the Woodruff Arts Center, the symphony board, the players themselves, our staff, we're, we're making this commitment to within four years restore these 11 positions. And that was something everybody could see was an important next step to the refurbishment, essentially, of the orchestra. And it was so gratifying, within a year and a half, we had accomplished that fundraising goal. And in fact, we had achieved the fundraising goal before we could manage the nuts and bolts of actually hiring the players, because it takes time to announce auditions, to have them, to go through the process of hiring these people. So it's it's been a it's been a wonderful sign of of new health uh, that we were able to achieve that so quickly. So you got money you haven't even had a chance to spend it yet. <laughs> In a way, that's true. That's, that's a plus. Um, the uh, I, I'm thinking back on some of the uh, interesting the things that have happened that Daniel Arsham and his uh, his beautiful sets that uh, that you played under and. Uh, uh, you've uh, uh, you've had other sort of theatrical elements that have been added into the uh, uh, to the symphony experience. Talk about those a little bit. 
on a number of occasions and with various collaborators, all of who've just been wonderful. Uh, we've presented concerts in a very theatrical way and sometimes with relatively unexpected repertoire, doing the Haydn creation in a theatrical setting and essentially in a staged version or the Bach Passions. Um, more obviously doing La Boheme or Madame Butterfly in a being opera, doing a kind of semi-stage or theatrical presentation would be more expected in a way. But then even having Chris Theophanides create a piece that was intended to be a multimedia event, that was intended to have um, a theatrical element as part of its conception. And so we've had David Arsham collaborating with Chris and uh, Ann Patterson doing the set designs and we were creating the direction and James Alexander and his collaborators creating our opera productions and Laurie Stallings coming in with her dancers for our recent Orfeo with David Daniels. All of these um, terrific collaborators and finding uh, ways of having the concert be a more theatrical experience without necessarily being an opera is to me an inherently just really interesting exploration. Do you think that's changing the audience? Do you think that's attracting a different um, audience member? I think that there are uh, people who are resistant to, uh, they, they want a very conservative listening experience right. and that that's what they're looking for when they come to concerts and then there are people who are looking for new experiences and wanting to experience things in a different way or a kind of exploration and I think one of the things we've had to be sensitive to is the variety of audiences we actually have because we say our audience but in fact our audience is I don't know how many discrete groups of people or maybe it's as many individuals as there are are on any given night what they're looking for, what interests them. And I, I know I get people who clamor for more Tchaikovsky and Beethoven as much as I get people who clamor for more Higdon and Theophanides. And that means we're finding the right balance. When, uh, when I'm getting equal complaints, I know I'm doing really well with the balance of things. Right, if they're quiet, then you must be doing something wrong. Yeah, exactly. So. Similarly, with the theatrical experiences, I think there are different audiences. I do know that the effectiveness of it, for me, was most proven when we did the John Passion, and there's a place near the end of the Bach John Passion where Jesus has died, and there's some not-so-important parts of the narrative that are about to be told by the evangelist, and it's late in the evening, and it's a notoriously sort of down moment in, in the life of the piece in any performance of it. In our set, Jesus had been, all the singers had been on podiums that were lit from within, and Jesus had left his after he died, and the evangelist had been next to the conductor's podium, and he left his lighted podium, and he went over to Jesus's podium, and it was a tall sort of cube, and he took his shoes off to enter this hallowed ground, and slowly got up on that podium and sat down and looked around as if, where is my Savior? At which point, 
he hadn't opened his mouth yet to deliver this notorious recitative and people were already sobbing. So the, the efficacy of the staging of the work was clear, if not throughout, at that moment, it was so clear that there was real value in, um, in presenting it in that way. Did you get a catch in the throat when you were watching that happen? Oh, absolutely, it moved me too. And one of the challenges as a performer often is um, maintaining one's ability to do one's <laughs> job while being moved. <laughs> Try not to cry and, and conduct at the same time. Exactly. The, uh, uh, now you also, it, it has to multiply your, your problems though when you have all of these moving parts and, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what's going to happen with Candide because you, you're going to have the, the ASO chorus and you're going to have the actors and you're going to have the orchestra and you're going to have a Gabrielli a moment there with five different moving parts. It, I wonder what that's going to be like. Well, there's no question when you start introducing dancers, singers, set designers, video, uh, actors into the mix, things can get all the more complicated. But to me, that's exhilarating how those things work together and how they complement support and supplement each other. That, that's, for me, one of the great thrills is um, seeing all these multifarious disciplines coalesce into something that's a, a whole. It also means you have to step outside your, uh, your comfort zone and, and do things that you might not otherwise do. It's funny, there's, there's this notion of a comfort zone that I've never found. <laughs> you mean you're I've always never, uncomfortable I've, no matter I've where never, you are. I've never found a comfort zone. <laughs> Even if I've never been able to find my comfort zone, I've definitely tested the limits of discomfort <laughs> repeatedly, and maybe never more so than in the productions I played with Laurie Stallings' group, yes. Glow. Because she has this wonderful way of working with amateurs to include them with her incredibly skilled moving artists. And I was very intimidated by the notion of participating in the choreographic aspect of the works we collaborated on together. I was playing the piano music that I'd written and <clears throat> we had worked together on that. And so in a sense that was uncomfortable <laughs> enough. And then having the piano be part of the set. But then she has this way of finding uh, ways for us, those of us with no skill, <laughs> to be part of the pageantry. And it's, it's astonishing to me that, that she can do that. By and taking your piano and spinning it around while you're playing it. <clears throat> that, being on that platform and having the piano spun around was one of the most... Um, incredible experiences I've ever had on any stage. But then finding ways to interact with her dancers was even more challenging to kind of trust that, trust her and trust that she knew what she was doing and that she would find a way for this to be integrated and to work. And it was very um, daunting in a way. But now you're a dancer. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> okay, now you've moved professionally in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> and they've clapped. The, uh, I guess, though, that, that, you know, I wonder whether Stokowski or other, uh, you know, folks would have, now, would have drawn a line there and say, no, I can't, I have a, 
I have a shirt front I don't want to unbutton, you know, I, uh, uh... Well, I found for myself that my musical life is so much richer and rewarding as I keep my involvement in composing and playing the piano and playing chamber music and playing with singers and teaching and all those things for me fuel my work as a conductor and, and vice versa. My work as a conductor informs my work as a pianist and as a teacher and as a composer. And it's just, there's this wonderful kind of um, synergistic relationship between all these activities. And conductors in, in the end have to be, I mean, we're the musicians who don't make any sound. So at some level, we have to be musicians in some other way to to be conductors at all. Uh, and certainly most conductors had some real uh, advanced skill with an instrument or as a singer. And Although Robert Shaw was not, was not a trained musician. Well, Robert Shaw was a very trained musician. He just did a lot of his uh, education was on his own. And, and, and through, through voice rather than through violin or piano. Or... And certainly he had that expertise with the chorus. Mm -hmm. But he, um, I mean, some would say he was self-taught, but after working with Toscanini and Zell, I, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of learning going on in that relationship too. Right. Now, uh, you've uh, sort of uh, spoken to us uh, in, the, in the past about uh, composing and how uh, you're kind of like uh, Dorothy Parker. You like to have composed. Uh, the composing part is not necessarily your favorite thing, but now you're going to have some more time on your hands. Or will that mean that you'll be writing more? Or uh... I do want to write more music. I, I wrote a lot of music until I was about 31, 32. Until about five or six years ago, I didn't write that much. There were just a few things I did along the way. Uh, but over the last five, six years, I've gotten back to writing more, and it's been so gratifying. I know I need to do more. I do find it a process that is um, arduous and taxing and challenging. And you so beautifully quote Dorothy Barker. It's, it's nice to have it done. Um, and it is, it is so gratifying when you do get to that point where you think, Oh, I, I, I can believe in every, every note that's there. I, I, I believe in that. That's, I don't need to edit anymore. I don't need to fix it anymore. As a performer, you always have to just let go and be interested in the next thing. And no matter how dissatisfied you are with something, you have to let it go and invest in the next moment. That's the life of a performer is that investment into the next thing all the time. As a composer, you can over and over and over again, edit, change, tinker. Continue to fool with it. And, it, and that's, that's... Until you've ruined it. That, that can be a trap, but I also know how gratifying it can be when, by continuing to fool with it, you don't ruin it, and you actually do make it better and better and better. Beethoven's sketchbooks are a testament to that process. You know, so many things that we think of as inevitable and great and must have sprung out of his head like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. It's not the way it happened. <coughs> and you see versions of what 
we now regard as some of his greatest music. You see some of the earlier versions of what he had to go through to get there. It's inspiring, it's very inspiring to those of us who try to work through that process that it's possible to end up with something that great. <laughs> right, it, could, it can get better. The, uh, but you, and last time we, we spoke, you, you hadn't really thought about, okay, what's gonna happen next? Uh, where am I gonna go? Oh, in my life? After Atlanta, yeah. What uh, have you thought about that? Uh, are you going to stay in Atlanta? Will you travel more? What, what will happen to you? I don't know yet what my life is going to look like, and there's an exhilaration in that that's, that's for the moment, still really great. I mean, at some point, I'm sure I'll panic. <laughs> what am I doing? I've got to know what I'm doing. Right. But right now, knowing that I've got time, uh, it's the opportunity for me to think about how much... Do I want to teach more or less than I'm doing now? How much time do I really want to have to write? How much piano playing do I really want to do? Do I really want another orchestra right away? The job of a music director is so much more than being a conductor. Mm -hmm. And the thought of, I have to admit at the moment, the thought of being able to guest conduct and not carry the weight of the institutional responsibilities is wow, that could be very liberating. Yeah, you don't have to carry the whole weight. So we'll see. I, I, don't, I don't know what's next exactly in it, and um, we'll see how that works out. If I had to guess at this point, I will stay in Atlanta because uh, it's wonderful to live here. And if I am traveling more, what better place to travel from? And it certainly feels like home. The AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on AJC.com, along with deeper looks at trends and arts and entertainment and compelling looks at lost bits of history. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. The Works, an 80-acre adaptive mixed-use development on Chattahoochee Avenue in Atlanta's Upper West Side, has become a lively, often crowded mecca for everything from shopping and dining to axe throwing thanks in part to the lively scene at Dr. Scofflaw's Laboratory and Beer Garden. On any given weekend and many weekdays, you'll find throngs of happy beer lovers hanging out, playing parking lot cornhole, listening to live music, and grabbing a bite from an assortment of food trucks. Along with that, the neighborhood is home to eight other craft breweries and a cidery. That concentration of tap rooms within a few square miles not only makes it a unique section of the city, it makes it worthy of an extended brewery hopping visit. Grab a copy of the Sunday Atlanta Journal-Constitution on June 12th to read our look at this bustling, brewery-heavy neighborhood, or check it out online at AJC.com where you'll find an interactive map. When the High Museum of Art launched its lifelong learning program in February 2020, the intent was to help staunch the negative effects of social isolation on older adults. One month later, when the pandemic lockdown went into effect, people of all ages found themselves suddenly socially isolated and grappling with the fallout of being unable to see family and friends, commune in public, or find joy through face-to-face -face camaraderie. Fortunately, the lifelong learning connection was not lost. Like many other arts organizations, The High pivoted to online engagement and relaunched its in-person activities this month. Get all the details and a story from our partners at Arts ATL, which you can find online at AJC.com. If you're listening to this podcast on AJC.com, 
please take a moment to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. And you'll be among the first to hear our new format when we relaunch in late summer. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. And I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more great interviews and events. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.